Hello, everybody. My name is Trish, and I am an alcoholic. Hi. It's a great group. And I am from Roanoke, Virginia, and I have some Roanokers here. I see some of you guys there, and I saw Amy come in the back. Who else is here from Roanoke? Where's my Roanoke people? All right. Hey, everybody. Um, boy, that's going to keep me honest tonight, isn't it? <laughs> Usually I can get up here and I'm just... Okay. Well, I'm going to start at the beginning. And uh, the real reason I'm an alcoholic is because I was born in West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one leg shorter than the other, that is the truth, but my uncle and brother were not the same person. <laughs> That's the truth, too. <laughs> so, I got a, um, I, uh, Jay asked me to share at this uh, meeting some time ago. I met Jay um, at the Okie from Okie Swamp. Uh, Romp in the Swamp was the name of the place we were. We were we were uh, sharing our story, and one of the committee took us to uh, down to the actual swamp, so you know we could see. That's one of the nice things about um, the privilege of getting to share at different places is you get to see different things. And I had never seen um, there are alligators in the swamp. Is that right? It's not crocodiles. It's alligators. Anyway, so we went down, and I'd never seen them in their natural domain, and. Um, so we were all standing here on this bridge, the fellow that took us and Jay and I, we were just standing there quietly watching these alligators and they're just sort of hovering. They're just all over this lagoon and they're just sort of laying there. And, and it's sort of like they didn't want you to know they were watching you, but you knew they were watching you, you know, kind of thing. And Jay just leaned over me and he said, a lot like Al-Anons, aren't they? <laughs> So that, that was my introduction to Jay Plumbeck and, and my, uh, my path here to Fellowship by the Sea. It's a, I've never been here, and that, that's a shame because this is a really, it's been fun. And a lot of, I know a lot of the people from Roanoke uh, come here. And um, your attendance is probably down this year since the flyer went out early that you know, Homegirl would be down here. But anyway, because they've all heard me and heard me and heard me. But anyway. Um, I brought, I was telling the committee last night that I brought one of my daughters with me. She's 15 and a half, going on 37, you know how that works. And, uh, and they all just laughed and said, can you get any stupider? And I said, no, you know, because I am the most ignorant person in her eyes. And uh, that's what happens with them when you're the mother of a 15 and a half year old, you know. And so I asked her, I said, do you want to go? You know, the only reason she's here is because it was a way to the beach. I mean, you know, that, that's it. Um, she's heard enough of my story, lived most of it, um, and has no interest in participating in any of the events. But I thought last night uh, I'd ask her, I said, now, are you sure you don't want to come on over and listen to uh, this gentleman? His name's Sterling. He's been around for a long time. And, and uh, Sarah just looked at me sort of funny. And Sarah's an equestrian. It's the one good habit she has. And uh, she has this really pretty uh, Percheron thoroughbred uh, gray horse jumper that she jumps and uh, and she looked at me real funny and she said so you think that I want to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and listen to some old drunk tell his story that has the same name as my horse <laughs> well, that's the truth and that's the truth her, her horse's name is Sterling so so, I, I, as usual, there wasn't much there to argue with, and I, so I, I left her to, with her face stuck in the TV and came on over and heard a great story. I, I was uh, really enjoyed listening to Sterling, but, uh, you know, I just thought, geez, you know, 1936, he went to Roanoke to enlist in the service, and I thought, God, I wouldn't even, I was 20 years shy of even being a twinkle in my daddy's eye, you know? And I kept, and, and the reason this was impressive to me is because two days ago I woke up and I noticed that I had wrinkles in my earlobes. <laughs> and it really bothers me that I have these wrinkles in my earlobes. And so it really made me feel better to hear somebody talk about long time ago 
and 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 he talked about going to taverns and man I was a bar hopper I love the bars but I never once heard it referred to as a tavern except in the Daniel Boone um, <laughs> y'all watched that series it was a great series you know and they go in the tavern you know and I, and so I could just picture Sterling with that coonskin cap you know How old are you anyway? <laughs> 30 years sober. That's amazing. And, uh, and it's really cool to get to speak on your birthday. I'm a, I'm a newbie and I'm a, I'm a relatively a relative newcomer to all this. My sobriety date is February 23, 1992. Um, and I've been clean and sober for that many years. And I've actually not had a drink since March 9th of 1987, and I will tell you how that happens. If you say, you'll have to pay really close attention to see how that works. Um, anyway, as I said, I was born in Beckley, West Virginia, um, to a dairy farmer. My father was a dairy farmer. His father was a dairy farmer, and he had his own little farm, was trying to make a go of it, and just couldn't seem to get it up and off the ground. And um, so he made a bold decision to change um, what he did for a living, and he, uh, so he went into the insurance business, and he, um, we moved to Lewisburg, West Virginia, which is a beautiful little town, uh, just about an hour and a half from Roanoke, across the West Virginia State Line, near where the West Virginia State Fair was, and my memories of my childhood were really good. I had a lot of fun in my early childhood. Uh, we did lots of cool stuff. We camped, and um, we were a pretty tight little family. I had a brother that was five and a half years older than me, and um uh, he was very athletic. We were all very outdoorsy kind of people. Well, when, when I was 10, uh, my dad got transferred to Roanoke, Virginia. And I had always thought Roanoke was a really cool place because I can remember every once in a while, right before school, we'd go to Roanoke to get our school clothes and stuff like that. And I remember the Sears and Roebuck, and it had an escalator, and I thought that was the coolest thing to go and ride that escalator. And um, and I remember my first hardback book my mom bought me was Cinderella. And, uh, and I thought that was cool. And, and I sort of always was, that's sort of the way I was, was sort of a Cinderella kind of dreamy girl. Somewhere Over the Rainbow has always been my favorite um, song ever since I was a little kid. And, and uh, you know, my story is much like everybody else's here um, that I felt sort of apart from and um, different. Um, but yet, I, I, I really love my family, and I was especially fond of my dad. I was a daddy's girl. Uh, a little bit of a tomboy, and I followed him around with my hand in his back pocket all the time. And um, so when when it came time to move to Roanoke, um, we packed up and we moved. My mom wasn't too happy about it. She liked the country, and my brother was like a sophomore in high school, and he chose to stay there with some friends to finish out that year, and then he came on to Roanoke after that. And um, it just seemed like we just weren't cut out for the big city, but uh, things didn't go great. He um, he did come there. My brother came there, and he got involved in sports, and, and he was very good, and he was on the football team and on the baseball team, and he was a handsome young man and very popular. And But he sort of fell in with all the other people there. And, you know, Rano, unfortunately, in this aspect, has not changed that much. The high schools, um, and I, I ended up going to the same high school he did, is everybody would go to the football game, and then after the football game, they'd find the local hangout, our particular one that I remember was the parking lot of the Pizza Hut, and everybody would get together or the parking lot of the swimming pools or wherever we could find to sort of hide behind the trees a little bit and drink beer and do whatever else we were going to do. So uh, my brother fell right into that um, with all of his friends, and, um, and uh, so I can remember early on in my life, um, my dad and him in arguments late at night because he had come in and been drinking and he had been driving. Now, neither one of my parents were alcoholic, um, but my grandfather was. And uh, that's the only real um, introduction or experience with anybody that I had ever had uh, was alcohol. And my grandfather did die a premature death at 64 from, uh, from uh, heart disease, uh, directly related to his stress and his alcoholism in his life. Of course, nobody ever you know, talked about that much because alcoholism, where I came from, was something you didn't talk about much. And, uh, you know, it was uh, pretty much a shame-based kind of disease. Nobody thought it was a disease. They just thought it was a weakness in character. And as, But as long as he kept um, paying the bills and doing the things he needed to do, everybody loved Granddaddy, you know. So um, anyway, so I hadn't had much experience with uh, 
people drinking. And um, so I can remember hearing that going on and just thinking it was it was pretty upsetting to be woken up in the middle of the night and hearing your dad arguing with your brother and one thing and another. And so this went on for about six months, and, and I just thought it would never end. And then one night about 4 o'clock in the morning, we got a phone call, and um, <clears throat> it was a hospital. And my brother had been in a car wreck, and it had broken his neck, and he had been paralyzed from the waist down. And actually a little higher than that. He was actually uh, qualified as a quadriplegic. And um, so my family was just devastated. It was a very pivotal point in my life. I was 12 years old by that time. And um, probably one of the worst stages of the game for a young girl to sort of be in that predicament where she didn't have the positive influence um, of her parents that she had had up to that point. And so it was just really at that point that I felt abandoned or lost. And I get really sick of all these buzzwords, but they pretty much apply. So um, anyway, my parents were devastated. We were all devastated. And my brother was in the hospital for over a year. And they spent the majority of their time there with him. Um, my father was never able to work again. He had a complete nervous breakdown um, over this whole situation because uh, my brother was just, you know, his pride and his joy, and I know that the guilt that he carried is what paralyzed him. He just felt like he did a lot of talking and he didn't take a lot of action. He never took the car keys away from him, um, things that he had to live with all of his life. So he never was able to work again. He was uh, eventually um, completely disabled and so he went on social security disability and fortunately having worked for an insurance company he had pretty good disability and so he moved away to the country not that far away out near the lake and then later up on the mountain not far from my 30 minutes from me um and and raised dogs that's what what he did he he um, always had had beagles in his life and um and that was an introduction that brought me to my now um, successful business. I own and operate my own grooming kennel and uh, my own grooming salon and boarding kennel, and I just have to play with puppies every day. It's the most awful job because I imagine <laughs> it really is wonderful, and it, it's very, very hard work though. And uh, but I tell you, um, I have learned to relate with those little animals a lot better than I've learned to relate to y'all. So. Um, but I'm still working on it, and that's part of the game here. So, anyway, um, my mom and my dad struggled, to say the least, and I struggled. And uh, my brother actually ended up coming home from the hospital, and he worked very, very hard at uh, trying to make himself a productive person again. And he actually ended up getting uh, uh, a job and going back to school, and and was able to get around in a wheelchair and got a car and put hand controls on it. And you know, he just was doing the best he can with what he had to work with and uh, and he had lost a lot because he had a couple scholarships to schools and um, anyway uh, along the along the way his kidneys had failed and he had been on kidney dialysis for several years and um, the kid, uh, kidneys were starting to deteriorate and, and poisoning his system so he went to the hospital to have them removed and uh, and the day before he came home he had a massive coronary and died and he was 23 years old and that was five years after his accident and uh, it was a shock to all of us. Um, you know, we didn't expect him to live what you would consider a normal lifetime, but we didn't expect that either. And uh, we were all just devastated. It just um, I didn't think my family could be blown any further apart, but it, it was. By that time, I was 17 years old. And uh, although when my brother had that accident, I swore I would never take a drink. I absolutely swore I would never take a drink. Couldn't imagine ever taking a drink, having seen what that did to my family and to my brother. Um, by the time I was 14, two years after my brother's accident, I was already actively drinking and uh, smoking dope and anything else I could do because everybody did it. And, you know, that's not an excuse. It's just an explanation. And I fell right in with the same crowd and the same people um, that my brother did. And it didn't matter whether you were a jock or a nerd or a hippie or what side of the uh, railroad tracks you were on, everybody went to school, did their sports or not, and got together after the activities and, you know, proceeded to drink. You know, for, for most of my upbringing, it was somewhat 
looked at, and still is, I think, to a great degree, as some sort of rite of passage for young men especially to be able to do that. And, um, you know, it's my opinion until that ceases, that attitude ceases, we're going to continue to lose people on the streets of our highways to drinking and driving accidents. And um, So anyway, and I've struggled with that, having two teenagers and uh, one that graduated as well from that same high school two years ago. And, uh, and uh, but got through there without scraping her knees, fortunately. And um, anyway, it is college, and that's a whole other ball game. And I never did that, so I can pretend like I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I love denial till it stops working. You know, <laughs> it's great stuff. Um, but anyway, so. Um, by the time I was 17 and my brother had died, my parents, I had been self-reliant for some time. And, you know, it was a combination of alcoholism and self-reliance that just about did me in. I, you know, this self-reliance stuff is evil. And <laughs> it is for me anyway. And, uh, but I became pretty good at it because there wasn't anybody around to ask. So I just pretty much did what I thought was the next indicated thing or the next right thing. And I, um, um, was on my own and all of a sudden when my brother died all eyes looked at me and uh, I said oh no you know don't look at me and I can't imagine what it must have been like for my parents at the time you know I was so full of anger and resentment um, everything that I have found out about myself today is in hindsight through working these steps and and having you all share with me and me share with you um, I don't know any of this stuff ahead of time you know I would do things different I'm sure but I don't know if that's good or bad. But anyway, um, I, I didn't want any attention by that point in time. I didn't want anybody looking at me, trying to include me, you know, because I didn't want anybody messing with my drinking. By the time I was 17 years old, a senior in high school, I was a full-blown teenage alcoholic, and I drank every single day to maintain that um, level of numbness. I was listening to a, a Bonnie Raitt CD on the way down here. I just love Bonnie. And um, she's talking about it takes a whole lot of medicine to help me pretend I'm somebody else. And, um, you know, it's the truth. It really, it really did take a whole lot of medicine. And I'm like every other alcoholic here that, you know, the first time I ever felt that warm beer go down that tasted like crap, I, um, I knew I was at home. I mean, you know, I was so conflicted but yet so overwhelmed with, um, I don't know what. It was just like I chased that forever. I chased that to the last drink I ever took. That that illusion that someday I'd be able to maintain that feeling and not slip over the edge into a blackout or into or into whatever it was and wherever I went. Um, there's a friend of mine here tonight I saw come in and, and we did a women's workshop once and uh, we made up a bunch of little funnies one time and one of the uh, one of them that uh, we made up was you might be an alcoholic if you wake up married to somebody you don't know. <laughs> You know, that was one of them. You might be an alcoholic if your liver's bigger than your breast. <laughs> yeah. There was a bunch of them. I can't remember them all, but they were funny. We had a good time with them. And uh, so I was well on my way to, to alcoholism, and, um, and I didn't care about anything else, nothing else. And so I was one of those functional alcoholics, I guess is what you call them. I, I was real important to me that I got up and went to work. I had, you know, that was of my nature. You know, it's funny. I was sitting in a meeting the other day, and I heard somebody talking about working and the fact that they did a lot, and, and, and she was talking about that being of her nature and that the really hard work in working her program was the letting go and the not trying so hard and the, and the, and the stepping back and, and letting other people do. And, you know, and I, and I thought about that at great length, and I thought that's so true because for some people, getting up and going to work and doing that on a daily basis is really hard work. And for other people, that comes sort of natural. So, you know, each one of us individually has to stretch ourselves in whatever way we have to. And so, you know, when I thought about that, I thought, damn, you know, you take a lot of credit for just doing what comes natural to you, you know. So that's sort of given me a new way of looking at my program and what am I doing with it. Um, and, uh, and so the easing up and the letting go and the not being a multitasker and a multi-manager and a micromanager is more of my hard work than getting in there and doing the grunt work. I can do the grunt work. So, you know, so that's, that's something I'm working on, or God and I are working on at this point. Um, 
so I got, um, I had my own place and loved it, and I just thought I was having a great time. I was working in a vet hospital and going to school, and, you know, I tried the nurses' training, and that didn't, I couldn't, couldn't stay sober enough, long enough to keep that up in the air. And uh, anyway, my parents had to be devastated. I, I thought about that a lot recently, that to have looked, have buried one child and looked around and seen another in the same jam, you know, it just had to have been awful hard for them. And um, anyway, I sort of estranged myself from them for several years, and things got a little sticky money-wise, and I was spending way too much money at the bar because I loved the bar. I loved to shoot pool. I loved to be there. You know, I, and some people have a goal to have a star on that in that place where you get your star, you know, in your hands. And I, I wanted a, a name tag on the bar stool somewhere. That was my, that was my goal. Um, you know, to have everybody recognize that's Trisha's stool, don't sit there, you know. And um, and that's sort of what happened, you know, with several places I frequent and, you know, they've got your drink poured or your beer poured before you can get to the stool and um, it, it was great. They all loved me and I loved that. And uh, as things got, as things got uh, progressively worse money-wise, I decided I needed just, oh, just a bunch of people over there and there's, things got... <laughs> Things got uh, worse, and I spent all my money, so I said, I've got to get on the other side of the bar so I won't spend so much money. And um, so I did. I got a job, and I didn't spend as much money, and I was drinking for free, and that was really good. And I, But I started having more blackouts. I, I think that's the way that works. You get more booze, you get more blackouts. But um, And this was a really classy place. You know, in the... In the uh, the chapter of vision for you and it talks about in the first or second paragraph there uh, we sought out sorted places <laughs> that was me oh. I wanted to be the queen and um, and I knew in this particular bar I could be because I was the only woman in it that had all of her teeth left <laughs> And, and most of the women and the men were Sterling's age. And, <laughs> and I thought I'd be safe there because I had about as much trouble with men as I did with alcohol. And, um, and I needed a little break from that. And um, it's funny, you know, I had a lot of what, the, what I, at the time I called long-term relationship. And to me, a long-term relationship is if I went out on Friday and Saturday night with you. <laughs> When I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous and the very first pseudo-sponsor that I picked, I, I, just, I was so dumb and so naive and I really didn't have a clue what was going on and, and, I, and, and it reminded me of it. I think about it often, but she's here tonight and it reminded me um, of meeting with her and asking her if she'd be my sponsor. And I think we only met one time and I, and I uh, sat down with her and I said, now all these men that I've taken advantage of, do I need to go and make amends to them? <laughs> And she said, "No, honey, I don't. I don't think so." And I just thought, "Damn, you know, that would have been fun." I would. <laughs> I thought, "Gosh, I could do that eight step." And um, but anyway, thank heaven she gave me that good advice. And um, but anyway, so I was working on the other side of this bar, and um, like I said. Uh, I wasn't seeing anybody at the time, and it had been almost like two weeks or something since I'd been out on a date. And this man walks in, and he's only, he's not not my age, but he's not as old as these other codgers that was in there drinking beer. And, um, so he was probably, I don't know, six or seven years older than me, and he had long, curly hair, you know. And, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and... And uh, I had these blue jeans on that, you know, kind you have to jump off the third story to get into. <laughs> and uh, we sort of looked at each other, and he said, you like to go out sometime? And I said, yeah, um, you know, how about tomorrow night? And he said, okay. And so we went out, and I think that was on a Thursday night, and uh, he moved in on Saturday. <laughs> and uh, does any of y'all, I, I, where's that lady that introduced me? She knows how to date. She's telling me, but she learned how to do that in sobriety, I bet you. Yeah. Does anybody else here know how to date? I don't know how to date. You take hostages where I come from. Or volunteer to be one, one of the two. And so um, this man and I moved in together, and um, 
and he was the best drinking partner anybody could have had. I just, we just drank great together uh, for about three weeks. And, <laughs> and then we decided this is just, we're just too intense. We just can't live together. So he moved across the street. <laughs> and, uh, and we ended up, things went so well that, you know, we ended up, um, oh gosh, we had, we had a very difficult drinking partnership to say the least and it was very very violent and ugly and um you know i didn't understand how much he fed into my pattern of you know he was a little more obnoxious and a little more out there than i was and i could drink like i wanted to drink behind him you know and and i and i was um as my girls still tell me a force to be reckoned with you know i i had quite the reputation that preceded me i was angry and I was loud, and I was mean, and I know y'all just can't imagine that about me, but I was. <laughs> and um, anyway, so uh, he and I uh, didn't get along so well that we got married, and um, we thought that would be the best thing to do. So, uh, and we really, you know, the saddest part about it, we laugh about a lot of stuff, but the truth is all this stuff's pretty sad. And the saddest part about it is that, that he is a really good person and I was a really good girl and we all we really wanted was to have a life that was like everybody had said we ought to have, like mom and daddy did, you know, and um, go to work and raise our kids and have a family and mow the grass and I wanted to plant flowers and have a garden and, you know, that, that's all I really wanted. I didn't really want all that crazy stuff I was doing, but by that time I was physically um, addicted to alcohol and definitely um, all the other threefold parts of this disease had, had taken over my life and ran it and ran his as well. And we tried really hard, um, but, you know, things just didn't go well for us. Um, a couple of years after we were married, though, uh, I became pregnant and we thought, this is it. Everybody thought, this will do it. This will calm them down. This will pull it together. And we really thought it would. And um, we were tickled to death. We were just overwhelmed with joy, like most people are, young married people are, when they uh, find out they're going to have a family. And we both had decent jobs, and, you know, we weren't making a killing, but we were surviving. And um, uh, so along came this beautiful little baby girl. Her name was Amanda Carroll. And um, we were just tickled to death. And she was the first granddaughter on my side of the family, or first grandchild, only grandchild on my side of the family, and first granddaughter on his side of the family. And um, and so we just were happy. We just were very, very happy. Except for the fact that, you know, I was staying home with this baby that I so much wanted to be a mother to, and he was getting to go on living his life just like he had been living it before she came, which, I mean, he got up and went to work, and, you know, then he stopped by the bar on his way home, and I was still waiting and still waiting and still waiting, and I didn't get to go out and drink and do the things I wanted to do, and so every chance I had, I did, and, you know, it just um, was incredibly difficult. And, uh, again, I was very, very sick. Uh, with a disease of alcoholism and um, and a lot of pain and a lot of emotional pain that I didn't even have a clue about that that I only can recognize today in having lived through those times and uh, worked through it uh, with the steps but every opportunity I had I took Amanda and left her with whoever would take her and watch her while I would go to the bar and drink or I would um, I would seek out whatever avenues I could to, to find that combination of medicines that would make me somebody other than who I was. And um, uh, she was about 16 months old, and I had been off that work that day and had been out partying all day long and went and picked her up, and it was on uh, January 27th, 1982. Uh, we were on our way home and um, had a bad car wreck. And... Um, Amanda was killed that night by a drunk driver, and that drunk driver was me. And um, it has been an incredible journey, uh, to say the least. Um, and that's part of why I'm here tonight, is to share that with you. And to uh, remind you of things I'm sure you already know uh, about how many people die from this disease have never tasted alcohol whose lips have never touched a glass or a bottle, who um, are innocent. You know, how many people die from the disease of alcoholism and never drank? There's lots of them. Believe me, there's lots of them. So um, 
at 22 years old, I buried my first child, um, a drunk woman. And um, it's taken me a long time to be able to say that. I've, you know, I've gone through all kinds of stages and phases with that. I've done a lot of work through this program with that. done a lot of work through therapy with that. I'm here to tell you that works. I mean, you know, there's a combination. It says in our big book, be quick to take advantage of whatever good stuff anybody has to offer to us through the medical field or the uh, or through uh, spiritual or religious fields. Uh, I'm not particularly a religious person, but, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has brought me a spirituality that I can live with today. And, that, and, and it's through these steps that I've come to be able to live life on life's terms and be able to deal with that. And um, um, so in many ways, um, in many ways, that's been a blessing. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me, has been able to take that and turn it around in, in whatever aspect is possible and know that that child didn't have to live through the next umpteen years of my disease and her father's disease and that I have been able to share this with many, many people and have had lots of women that I've worked with that have struggled with this same kind of issues. And uh, um, it's, it's devastating. But um, at the time, everybody thought, well, that's it. That's the last drink Trisha will ever take. I was almost killed in the accident. It took them almost two hours to get me out of the car. They had to get the jaws of life, and I was pretty mangled up and spent a long time in the hospital and a lot of surgeries to put me back together. Um, and I didn't care. You know, I didn't care about any of that. Um, I was very, very fortunate. There was a grief counselor at this particular hospital that made arrangements to have a closure with that child, and I don't think I could have... Uh, um, I just made a big difference in my recovery uh, with that, and so uh, I'm glad to have had that moment. Um, God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself over and over and over all my life. You know, I just haven't always recognized it, but he's been putting angels in my life from the beginning. So I didn't see any point in quitting drinking at that point in time. I mean, you know, the, the truth of the matter is I thought I was going to, but I was so doped up on morphine and everything else and the... Uh, um, hospital and I got out and I remember how alone I was and I remember thinking the only people I know drink. I don't know anybody that doesn't drink except my mama and I sure don't want to go home and live with her. There was too much history there and all that stuff and I was so scared of being alone and I remember the first drink that I had after that I went back to the very same bar that I had been practically living in all my life and made myself drink that next beer. I had to drink that next beer. and. Um, and there's only people like you in these rooms that understand that. There's no way to explain that except for people like you, you know, that have been there and know what it means to drink when you don't want to drink more than anything. And so I drank as hard as I could for the next five years, tried to drink myself to death. My husband and I relocated to Tampa. We couldn't deal with the... Um, couldn't deal with the faces. We couldn't deal with the rumors. We couldn't deal with anything, even though it was bigger town than I was used to, everybody still knew everybody, and we sort of got little sections of town, southwest, southeast, northwest, and if you live in southwest county, you knew us, and you knew what had happened, and you knew all about it, and so we moved to Tampa, and I proceeded to try to drink myself to death down there, and that didn't come easy, and, um, you know, it's amazing how resilient the human body is, it's just amazing, and um, I was, I had pins and bolts, and I had every kind of thing holding me together in my legs, and I remember the doctor saying, whatever you do, don't get pregnant. And they obviously didn't know I was an alcoholic or that had never approached it like that. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know how they missed it, but uh, anyway. But the first thing I did was to get pregnant. And um, uh, I drank through that whole entire pregnancy. You know, you talk about insanity. I, um it's hard for me to sit here and tell you all this story and remember that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a problem with that second step. You know, I just couldn't see how that applied to me. <laughs> and I've had to tell my story a lot to get it, I tell you, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But anyway, um, I drank through that whole pregnancy, and on September 16th in 1983, Jessica Carroll was born. I had gained nine pounds during that pregnancy. Now, how she was born healthy, even though she was three weeks early, she was not alcohol fetal syndrome. She was a healthy, had a 9.0 in APGAR. I mean, it was amazing. Um, it was just the grace of God. 
And um, so we came home from that hospital, and, and things didn't get any better. And, and things proceeded to get really bad between my husband and I again. And we were, things were more and more violent, and the beatings were worse. And, um, and it wasn't always just him beating me. And uh, I used to tell that story a whole lot different, but I was right there in all of that. Um, I was much part of all that abuse as he was. And he needed to take as much responsibility as he, he uh, yeah. And one of the things I found out is, um, yeah, got to do that. So anyway, um, one night I just said I couldn't take it anymore. And I packed that little girl up. She was about nine months old. And I drove home, and uh, home being Beckley, West Virginia, where my mama was. Finally had to go home to mama, couldn't take it anymore. And uh, uh, so I packed her up, and I drove home, and um, I called the next day and made arrangements for a divorce. That was the second divorce I'd made arrangements for. I sent him a certified check, and I, if you don't get anything else from this talk tonight, get this. If you, if you don't pay for a divorce till you get it, okay? <laughs> I ended up paying three times for that one divorce. <laughs> oh, Lordy. But anyway, I came on back home and uh, stayed with my mama for a little bit and uh, just a week or so. And then I went back to Roanoke and I had a little bit of money left over from a settlement on a house that we had sold when we had left to live in Tampa. And I started my own mobile dog grooming business and uh, something I had run into in Tampa. Uh, there was another girl, another Trish down there that groomed dogs, and all they did down, y'all probably know that, I didn't, but down there they just do it mobile from, go from one home to the next, and this little truck's got everything you need in it. It's really cool. Well, right in Virginia had never heard anything like that, so I came home and started that, and, um, and it just was, went over like gangbusters, and, and that was almost 20 years ago that I started that mobile dog grooming business, me and one little truck. I ended up with three trucks and later bought uh, a grooming salon and then later bought a corner and built a boarding kennel. And it's just been, I mean, it's just been a big snowball. I never planned any of it. And I never planned any of it. It all just happened um, by the grace of God through Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I was a drunk woman when I started all this. The Lord, thank you for getting me sober right before it all crashed to the bottom. <laughs> he pulled me up by my... You pulled me up by my bootstraps, you know, and, and got me going, got me set in the right path. But anyway, my um, ex-husband, DeVee, followed me up here, and um, he said, I'm not going to drink anymore, honey. And I said, well, I don't think there's any way we're going to do this unless we go where your mama goes, and she goes to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he hung his head and said, okay. And so we went to a Wednesday night meeting, and um, we sat there, and we heard what they had to say and and i the woman kept looking at me and i kept saying are you sure you can't drink anything you know (laughs) i said i have to drink at least six beers before i even know i've had anything to drink so you know can't you at least have whatever it takes just till you start feeling she said no honey i think to be a member of alcoholics anonymous you only have to have a desire not to drink but really what it means is you're not supposed to drink anything one day at a time so we went home, I talked about that with him, and we decided we weren't going back to that meeting anymore. And <laughs> we could do this. We had done it a thousand times. We had quit a bunch of times. It was just the starting up we couldn't stop. And um, so we did it again. We stopped drinking again. And, and we went a couple of weeks, and we said, damn, we're doing good. So we, uh, we split a six-pack of celebrate. <laughs> you know the rest of the story. It was approximately three months before we were back full-blown, Hiding our own, you know, hiding our beer from each other again, getting in big fights, you know, it was just awful. It just doesn't take any time to get back to that. Well, we lived like that for about two more years, and I just said, that's it, that's enough, final straw, I don't know. My particular bottom at this time was up here compared to where I had been. I mean, I was one of these girls who just bounced along the bottom, you know, I just, boom. I could have, I don't know, what does it take? You know, what does it take? Where is that light bulb? When does it come that says, this is it, enough? And I just said, that's it, I'm done. And I went to um, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on March 9th, and I picked up a white chip, and that was in 1987, and I haven't had a drink since. And I ended up a month later getting pregnant um, with my little smart like 15 and a half year old that's with me here tonight, and not in this room, thank heavens, because you're a lovely child if you are. <laughs> and, um, Anyway, 
Um, and um, and so the first couple of years of sobriety were so cool. I was just I was on I was a pink cloud girl. You know, I was one of those pink cloud girls, and I just bebopped into meetings and just loved them and. And I just said, well, first, my first thought was, I'm going to throw all my dirt right out here on the table, and they're going to ask me to leave, and then I can say, well, that didn't work. And so I told y'all the worst things that had ever happened to me, and about Amanda, and this, and one thing and another, and people just pat me on the back and say, keep coming back, keep coming back. And I don't know how many hundreds of people over the years have come up to me and said, sweetheart, I don't know how many times I drove drunk with the ch my children in my car. And why I'm not telling your story, I don't have any idea, but God bless you. You can't. I can't begin to tell you how healing that has been for me to have all of you all love me like that and be honest with me about about that. And because um, I was pretty sure I was the only one that had ever done that for a long time. And um, so anyway, um, got sober, had another baby, didn't get a sponsor. Talked to that one sponsor, and she didn't want me to make amends to those fellows, so. I said, well, you know, that sponsorship stuff don't sound like much fun. So, um, and I and I was scared. I just, you know, I had all of this baggage and all of this stuff, and I really was scared. And there was just something that wasn't clicking. I thought working the steps was what we were doing when we were sitting in those meetings talking about them. I just, I didn't understand it. I never read the um, big book, and y'all kept talking about it being the blue coaster, and I just say, uh huh, yeah, and I didn't get it. I didn't get it, and um. And so, uh, four and a half, and I was picking up chips, and I just thought it was all great. Well, it was about two and a half years without taking a drink. I was someplace, I can't even remember where, and I was standing there, and they were passing around a marijuana cigarette. And um, it just came my way, and I just wasn't even thinking, and I just started smoking. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? Marijuana cigarette. It was a joint, is what it was. <laughs> So, you know, I was hitting that joint, and um, and it just uh, didn't think anything about it. Didn't even cross my mind. Hadn't read the big book. Didn't think it said anything in there about don't smoke marijuana. Never heard anybody say in a meeting, don't smoke marijuana. You know, didn't have a sponsor to say, is it okay if I smoke marijuana? And, you know, so I just went on along my merry way, you know, and people were so good to me. I mean, and they didn't know. I just was pontificating right and left about acceptance and love and spirituality and the third step and, you know, God. Anyway, um, so about four and a half years without taking a drink on now on the marijuana maintenance program. <laughs> I went home one night, one weekend. I had just found out that my mother had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And, um, I went home to visit her, and when I came back and was telling my husband, my ex-husband-to-be about it, he said, well, I have some more bad news for you. And I said, well, great. You know? And he said, I'm in love with somebody else, and she's 19 years younger than me. And I said, oh, my. So <laughs> I don't have enough hours in this evening to tell y'all all about that. <laughs> but I, I have the world record, and it's down at Ripley's, believe it or not, for claw marks in a relationship. I mean, you know, good Lord, what was it going to ever take for me to let go of that insanity? So this was a big step. You can believe that. And um, so anyway, I just was lost. I was just, I was, you know, after all I had done to hold that marriage together, you know, that was all about me. It was all about the fact that I hear, how many times I've tried to divorce you and now you're in love with somebody else? You know, it was just... <laughs> My ego was killing me. I mean, you know, how dare you? You know, I should have at least got to find somebody first. You owe me that much. That's the way I thought, and that's the way I felt. And anyway, so I remember leaving and going to my shop and uh, and just pacing back and forth and wondering, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? It was a Saturday night. And I went to a Sunday morning meeting, my favorite meeting, where I thought everybody in there had wings and under their shirts and they were going to pop out any minute. That's really what I thought. I could not imagine those people in those rooms as drunk people. Today, I can see every one of them like that, believe me. 
But anyway, not that they're not wonderful people, but I've come to understand they're real, you know, just like I was. And, and that's what it took for me to be able to start getting real, too. But anyway, um, so I went and I told, I told somebody about it at the meeting. He said, let me hook you up with these women over here. And I went with them to the after meeting meeting, and we had breakfast, and we started talking. And they said, honey, you don't have to go through this alone. And I thought, hmm, that's strange. I felt pretty much like that. And, and, and I really did like AA, and, and I, so I just said, well, I'm going to start going more. And so things sort of worked out the way they worked out. And about six months after I had found out all about this, and he had left, and he had started drinking again. So a combination of him fooling around and drinking again is what it took for me to finally let that relationship go. And um, um, I was talking to a woman who, I, by that time, I had asked to be my sponsor for real. And it was coming up on my five-year chip, my five-year medallion. I was so excited about that because five is something special to me. I don't know what it is, but I really like five. And um, and so I was telling her she was excited about giving it to me too. She said, "You've been through so much, and I'm just going to be so proud to give you this five-year medallion." So all these people, you haven't had to take a drink through all these hardships and everything. And I said, "Me too, but I think there's one thing I need to tell you." And uh, <laughs> she said, "What is that?" And I said, "Well, now I'm supposed to be able to be honest with you, right?" And she said, "Oh yeah, honey, you can tell me anything." And I said, well, good, because for the last several years, I've been smoking a little bit of marijuana. And she said, marijuana? I said, yes, ma'am. And I said, I sure, I sure am glad I got that off my chest. <laughs> I said, now, you know, I got to be honest with you about it. Now, you know, what time are we going to meet in the morning before we get that chip? <laughs> she said, I think maybe we better meet right now. I, or it was lunch the next day. or I can't remember exactly the particulars, but I knew right there it wasn't good. So we met and we had a discussion about what sobriety really was. <laughs> and uh, so that Sunday morning in front of all those people who thought I'd been sober for five years, I stood up and picked up a white chip and I said, I have not had a drink but I want what this program has to offer me, and I know that I can't have that unless I'm honest with you people and with myself. And I said, I've been smoking marijuana. So today, on February 23rd, 1992, I want to get honest with you, and I, and I want a white chip. And I cried like a baby, just cried boo-hoo, boo-hoo, you know. And, and I knew I was in the right place because, you know, one time, somewhere along the, the, the way, somebody had mentioned about being an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. You know, I said, I'm home, that's it. You know, and another friend of mine, Polly T, talks about the ego being the first thing to get well in this program, you know. God, it's the truth. It is so much the truth. And anyway, that's about what kept me out there. Self-reliance and, uh, and the disease of alcoholism and, and my ego of uh, not wanting to admit that you know, I was whipped by everything. I was whipped by life and that powerlessness was my dilemma. And so I picked up that white chip, and the whole world just opened up for me, and I started working steps like they're supposed to be worked, and things started changing in my life. Incredible things started happening. It's just like Sterling said last night. As I kept going to meetings and I kept hanging around, incredible things started to happen. I had a profound change in my personality and my attitude towards life as a result of working these steps. And my consciousness changed. I didn't have that before, and that's why I had to pick up the marijuana a long way. I had not had that experience. And when today, when I say that I am powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable, and I've come to believe in the power greater myself and return me to sanity, and I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, asking only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out. I mean that. And I know what that third step prayer means today. I know that third step prayer means relieving me from the bondage of self. And I know what the fourth step is about. I know it's about me changing who I am because they told me the Trish Crawford that walked in these rooms left unchanged would drink again, and I don't ever want to go back to that life. There's no reason I should ever have to go back to the life. That's what this program promises me. I don't ever have to, I don't have to worry about it. It's been removed. The desire to drink and drug has been removed. And that's what the uh, tenth step promise, promises me as well. There's all kinds of promises in this program. And all I have to do is make myself willing and ready to receive this gift. It says that too. This is a gift. My sobriety is a gift. And, and I know that. I know it's not a thing of myself. I am nothing that the Father has done this work within me. 
And I know that this is not about just me being all warm and fuzzy and having a wonderful life, which I do. It's about me clearing away the wreckage of my past. It's about me becoming free of the bondage of self. It's about me being able to show to you all victory over my difficulty so I can be of better service to my God. This is not just about Trish getting all well and being able to live with the fact that she killed her daughter in a car wreck when she was drunk. That's not what this is all about. That's a wonderful piece. That's, thank God that I have become able to live with that and hold my head up and be a functioning member of society. Thank God that I'm able to stand in front of you all and not say all the right words and to fumble over things and to be okay with that today. Um, my husband's not okay with that. He doesn't. He thinks I need to study the English language more, but that's okay. Um, and I do have a wonderful husband. I, I can't not mention him. Um, I did get married in sobriety. We had difficult times at best because I was early into my new, brand new white chip. Um, he was about seven years sober, and I was six six months the second. You know, you know what? It took me about seven years of picking up chips not to say. Well, like when I picked up my white chip, my, and then the year, the next year when I picked up my my real one-year chip, and I said, well, it's my one-year chip, but I haven't had a drink in six years. Uh, you know, ego is just following me around forever, you know. It wasn't until I picked up my seven-year medallion that I was able to not mention the fact that I hadn't had a drink for 12 years. You know, sheesh. Oh, well, sometimes it gets better. Anyway, I, I am just so delighted to be here, and my, uh, my husband has been such a gift. We have taught each other so much about working this program. You know, Sandy was just telling me that you know, her relationship was just glorious, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what are we doing wrong? Because yeah. <laughs> mine's nothing like I thought it would be. You know, we ended up having to separate in sobriety because, you know, we hadn't worked through, I hadn't worked through issues. You know, you can't get out of a sick relationship, 15-year relationship, and six months later getting another one and think you've done all the work you need to do, for heaven's sake. You know, so I'm still acting out the same nutty stuff I was acting out in the first relationship. I just wasn't drinking and doing any drugs. You know, thank God for these steps. I'd be, whew, poor man. Anyway. <laughs> He's stuck in there with me, and uh, and I was telling Sandy that really what, what made it able for us to get back together is that, that our primary purpose was to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. It wasn't... You know, we had just enough going on not to be so obsessed with each other that we took the focus off of our sobriety, which is primary. And, you know, he knows that my relationship with my God is first and foremost, and I know that his is. And uh, and we, we do the best we can to support each other on our path and our journey, and, and things have calmed down a lot. And we've been married eight years now and, and really looking uh, looking forward to the next eight. And um, I have two gorgeous kids that I'm that I am blessed to be aggravated by. The, um, one of the best things I've heard lately in a meeting, I'm going to share this with you now, I'm going to get out of here, is uh, one of the girls said that when I'm in self-reliance, when I'm not relying on God, all his gifts to me, gifts to me become burdens. And I thought, man, ain't that the truth. When I'm all caught up in myself, everything he's given me seems like a hardship. You know, i got to do this and i got to do that and these kids and that and you know, and when I'm in, and when I'm in His light, and when I'm working towards His will, all His gifts are nothing but blessings, and they are. And being here with you all tonight is something I never ever dreamed possible. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. hope you've enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon talks, or to find out about our tape and CD of the Month Club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308, or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com.